0: Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players, by badminton players, proudly brought to you by Villan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials, or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff
1: and Henry. And we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now, it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our Badminton Basics at volantwear.com, and follow us on our socials at volantwear.
0: So podcast listeners, today we are speaking to Don Hearn, an editor for Badzine based in South Korea. If you haven't heard of Badzine before, they inform fans and readers about what is going on in our sport through articles, news and features. Don is a second generation enthusiast from rural Canada who started playing at age 12. By the time he left for university, his international badminton exposure consisted of exactly one magazine article and 30 minutes of one television broadcast. But things changed after he moved to Korea in 1995 and he was recruited by badzine founder Raphael Sachetat while volunteering as an announcer at the Korea Open. Ever since then, badminton has been his number one leisure time, and not only was he playing and watching badminton, he was also writing and editing badminton-related articles for BADZINE.
2: On an individual level, a major thing that I would think people have to keep in mind is not to sell the sport short. There's an expression that I keep seeing on 비 인기 and 비 인기 means a sport that doesn't have a lot of popularity. <laughs> so, Well, we have to sort of take that as a given that You know the sport's not popular so we have to do what we can in spite of it and i never like to accept that i just think well you know i don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy i want people involved with badminton to hold their head up high and be proud of the sport and basically to treat it as if it deserves the respect i think that we have to love the sport as it is and uh if it grows in the future it's probably going to grow but i think that You really have to love the sport for what it does for us when we engage in it. Welcome onto the podcast,
0: Don. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So Don, just quickly, we're curious as to what the one magazine article was about that you were exposed to, as well as what you were watching in the 30 minutes of the TV broadcast.
2: (laughs) Right. I guess what I was trying to emphasize was that the magazine article, as far as I know, it was maybe all I had, I could have seen. And it was in a quarterly publication that was actually devoted to all racket sports in Canada. And this is in the early 1980s. And they just had one, as I remember, I received that magazine for maybe uh, two years. And in that entire time, I saw only one article devoted to badminton. And it was very much an overview talking about how the strongest countries in the world were Malaysia, Indonesia, and Denmark. England was up there, and they were mentioning that China was really just coming on. And I believe they mentioned uh, Morton Frost in that article, but I didn't recall any other names. I thought it was quite interesting because when I actually came to Korea in 1995, I had no idea that Koreans were good at badminton, that there were world-class players here. I mean, I thought it's possible. But the last I had heard was really this article in the early 1980s, which only named... These four or five other countries didn't mention Korea. So I had really no idea what to expect. The reality was that there was so little attention paid to badminton in mainstream media, which is, you know, this is pre internet age. So there was really very little else that you could turn to. I mean, I happen to have a subscription to a racket magazine, which is actually called Rackets Canada. But, you know, there was really so little out there in terms of news sources. So other than the newspapers or what you could see on television, there was very little that you could use to get exposure to sports, you know, that the media chose not to cover. As for the broadcast, it must have been the Commonwealth Games. I believe it would be the Commonwealth Games in 1986, which I believe were in Britain somewhere or in the British Isles somewhere. I don't remember exactly. But the reason it was only on for 30 minutes was that we just happened to tune into it at the cottage. So basically, the lake was literally... 40 meters away. So <laughs> it didn't last long that I would be inside on a beautiful sunny day watching badminton, which I had never seen on television before. At that time, I'd already been playing for, oh, I don't know, six years or something like that. It was kind of special, but on the other hand, it just wasn't something I was going to watch a fuzzy broadcast on a tiny TV screen for.
1: Yeah, while you could
2: enjoy the beautiful
1: weather outside, sounds like. But, Don, Do you remember what you were thinking during that time you were watching? Like, was it an eye-opener in terms of the speed or the way they played compared to what you had been exposed to previously?
2: Well, yeah, sure. I think probably what I would have remembered would have been the acrobatic nature of the sport. I remember when I was playing in high school, of course, for one thing, we had no idea what really existed in terms of a world-class game. I mean, I'd never heard of the All England. I'd never heard of the Thomas Cup or the Uber Cup or anything in those days. And no one I played badminton with did either. So I'm quite short. And uh, I remember one time complaining to the coach that badminton was frustrating to me because I couldn't make up for my short stature with jumping, which is what I would do in when I was playing basketball or volleyball, because I managed to develop something of a vertical so it was something that i was quite proud of in those other sports but i found that it just got really ungainly to try to jump to smash in badminton and i of course i would never actually seen anybody do it but yeah that is one thing that i do remember you know watching it on television oh well people do jump to smash and they they actually look quite elegant they get that's all figured out (laughs) but i had no one to sort of show me that it was possible how you should do it and you know No one that we played against in the school game knew how to do it. None of our coaches knew how to teach it. So yeah, it was one of the things that I remember. But of course, it was, um, I believe, a a men's doubles match, probably Malaysia versus England, if I'm not mistaken, although it's so long ago. But you can imagine how these would have been high-flying players and just jumping all over the court. A Very, very fast-moving game, which fast-moving, I was accustomed to. All the leaping was something new. And I just thought, wow, you know. I could have been doing this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine that would have been a bit of a paradigm shift for you. I think when I first started playing, the Jump Smash was something quite familiar to me quite early, but it seems like you had already played for about six years. And then all of a sudden this new dynamic is introduced to you. And the Jump Smash is just such an impressive thing to see. And it's such an athletic thing as well. So it would have been, yeah, a huge shift for you. In terms of your badminton and I guess your story, Don, if we rewind back a little bit to when you first got started at at about age 12 in a country where, you know, badminton is not very popular, how did you actually get involved in the sport?
2: You know, since I've been seeing badminton on the world stage, I keep hearing this, you've heard this tired old reference to the backyard sport and this sort of thing, right? To be honest, the badminton we played... In my small town was pretty low level, it was pretty bush league, but the thing is that at the same time, it was never anything but a sport. You know, when I was a child, my father played in a local club. Of course, it was purely recreational badminton. They only played once a week, they only operated certain months of the year in a, in a local school gym, so that's basically what it was for them it was it was always a sport, it was a sport that they didn't play anything like we would imagine world-class players would play. But the point was that it was a sport. It didn't have a reputation as something that was easy to play. It didn't have a reputation as being played by people who were less athletic or anything like that. In a way, it was sort of a prestige sport, especially in the local high school that I attended, which is ironic when you think of it because the fact is that there's such a disconnect between the sport in general as it's played in the school system in Canada and how they play it in the clubs, which is the only real avenue to the elite game in Canada, as far as I understand it. So in my case, norm was for children to sort of wait until they get into high school and then you play it in both gym class and there was a badminton team at the school. In my case, they started a little bit early. They started a program for younger kids. So age 12 and up, I was 12. So I got a chance to start it. My father had been in a club and actually my mother too, although she didn't play when I remember it, but they did play together earlier in their marriage. But my father knew about this program starting up and he was the one that encouraged me to do it. Of course, my brother and I wanted to be like dad and wanted to be like my oldest brother who also played when he was in high school. So I don't remember any hesitation. It was something fairly immediate. We really wanted to take up that sport and learn the sport that my father loved to play so much, and so that's really how it happened. In our school system, as I say, there was no hesitancy on the part of anyone. So people like me, we were on the basketball team. We were on the well, we called it football team, and people who were on those teams or hockey players, they would be just as likely to to join the badminton team if they felt they had the skill and the interest. So there was nothing about the sport in that context that was ever viewed as something inferior in any way, interestingly. Even though when I think of the level we played at, it's, it's, it feels nothing but inferior now to you know the way I see it played normally now that I live in Korea. That's
1: fantastic that there was this inclusivity to the sport, right? You could play basketball you could play hockey and then you could also play badminton and that's really refreshing to hear that as an athlete or as a a school athlete you can really get involved in all the different sports and badminton is one of the options you can choose from that's a great thing for the sport just from a young age for a lot of school kids especially when you were growing up. I'm not sure what the situation is now but I, I do believe that it is part of the school system in
2: Canada are you aware of that? I believe it's always been part of the school system, but as I say, there's a real disconnect between that and what actually leads to elite badminton. As far as I know, there's still no connection. Interestingly, I first heard about that, again, on a television program of all places. We used to have a game show in Canada where they would have these journalists who would try to guess, it was called Front Page Challenge, and they would have a a mystery guest whose, whose face was hidden. And they would be answering questions because these journalists would be trying to guess what newspaper headline they were representing or that they were affiliated with. One time, I just happened to be watching it, and they had two badminton champions. And I wish that I could uh, remember who they were and what they had won, what the headline was. But again, this is so far back in history, I haven't been able to track it down yet. What I do remember about that conversation when they finally interviewed these two players was that statement that they said that, There's no route to elite badminton through the school system. And so, you know, I had invested by that time, you know, so much, well, what what felt to me like so much time and effort, and I really enjoyed the sport so much. And here I was, this bombshell saying, well, you're never going anywhere in the sport through the school system. Now, I mean, when I look back, I don't believe I really had any talent, any potential. So, and I had so many other competing uh, interests athletically and otherwise. So, but still, it was interesting to hear it at that time. That was one of the first questions that I asked the first time I, I met a national team player from Canada, which was many years later in 2003, I believe. That was something I asked and I got confirmation. Yep. Nothing from the school system. <laughs> all, everyone is, you know, grows up into the sport and the system through the club system.
0: Yeah. So I can imagine you would have been shell-shocked when you heard of that I don't know if this was the result of you listening and finding out that there is no pathway that you decided, hey, I'm just going to go to Korea. That's probably not the reason why. But I guess my question to you now, Don, is how come you moved to Korea? What was the reason behind that move? And, and when did you make that?
2: Oh, well, it wasn't badminton related. So <laughs> as I said, in '95 uh, in when I arrived here, I really had no idea that badminton was played at such a high level. I didn't know that until Atlanta Olympics were on the television. I found myself in a restaurant sitting there watching uh, an all-Korean gold medal mixed doubles finals. That was when I realized, oh, wow, (laughs) Korea's players are some of the best of the world too. So, But yeah, what did bring me here? Well, I mean, I came uh, with a job already lined up. I was going to get into teaching. I'd been working in in Toronto for uh, several years after graduating from university there was a real shift happening there economically speaking and so i ended up working for uh, one of the most famous it companies at that time but their name was nowhere on my paycheck so i was basically working for a uh, a temporary employment company employment agency it was a really uh, awful work situation i'd be on a 6 month contract and at the end of 6 months my security badge wouldn't work and the security team would call up to ask my boss if i still had a job <laughs> so It was that sort of corporate environment. So I really wasn't sad to leave it. That was my last job in Canada. The shift to teaching when I came over here was was very different. I mean, it was different in so many ways, but one of the major ways that I remember was that just the respect I got as a teacher and the interaction that i had with my clients i say clients because they were students here but in the previous uh, job it, w- it was basically with clients and the relationship in that case was never it was never a very positive vibe so it was a really refreshing change when i came here a big big challenge coming to korea in a pre internet age and i say that because no one in korea was using the internet at that time and actually i had never used the internet before i came here so it was <laughs> It was really a different world when I first came. Actually, if you're interested, athletically speaking, what I was really looking forward to when I came here was speed skating because I had got into speed skating before I left Toronto for the last few years. And so I'd been doing triathlons and then I got into speed skating. And of course, at that time, Korea was famous in Canada for the quality of their short track speed skaters. So that was, you know, they were just at that time passing... Canada as the number one team worldwide, and so that was something that did get a lot of press coverage and uh, and television coverage. So I was looking forward to engaging in that sport in a way that I couldn't even in uh, Canada because in Toronto the scene is not as good as elsewhere in the country. When I did arrive here, I found that in the pre-internet age there was some similarity in the two things in that there's really an elite system in terms of sports in Korea generally. I mean. The recreational environment has really been developing over the last 25 years that I've been here. But the thing is that when I first came, you know, when I asked people, where can I speed skate? Where can I play badminton? I just got blank expressions from anyone I talked to. Nobody was sort of dialed in online, you know, nobody was linked up with any sort of network in that way. No one really had any idea of who to ask. The question about badminton, oh, just go out in the parking lot and play badminton. So in a way that was my first real encounter with this mindset of that badminton is a sport that you play outside and you try to hit the shuttle to your partner not away from your opponent as the sport is as i knew it you know this sight of people playing outside in the wind it never made any sense to me i think i i tried that once as a child before i started playing in a gym and i just thought this doesn't make any <laughs> sense <laughs> the, the shuttlecock is just too light so i remember i played for few minutes and then gave up and waited for the opportunity to play in a gym. But here it was quite normal, you know, people would play in a parking lot, play in a park, but for the vast majority of the population, they knew that there were famous players in Korea, but they didn't know where there were serious recreational players. If you ask anybody about badminton it's just, "Oh, just just grab a racket and go outside and play." So, this notion that you would have to have a gym, you'd have to have other serious players to play. Was something that no one I happened to meet or ask that question of really had any answer for, and it was similar, as I say, with speed skating. Although in that case there actually were no rinks, which was also a bit of a shock. But in the case of badminton, I guess the other thing was that you know, sort of silly me that my only experience was playing in a school gym, and most of the schools didn't have gyms (laughs) when I came here. All the kids would play basketball outside the high schools and elementary schools on dirt courts outside. It was very strange to me, but it took a few years before I finally uh, figured out how to track down a a badminton club and start playing this serious recreational game that I ended up with uh, eventually.
1: Okay, Don. So 1995, you've moved to Korea for teaching, interested in speed skating and badminton. And then fast forward to when you were at the Korea Open, you were an announcer. Were you the announcer because you could speak both Korean and English and you could announce both? Is that a good reason why you were an announcer or was that something that you've been doing in the past as well?
2: I watched my first Korea Open in 2002. And so I had been basically trying to see as much of the tournament as I could with each uh, ongoing year. I guess each year the tournament came up, I started, you know, looking for advanced information from the association website, the Babington Korea Association. And so this time in 2006, the website also had a call for volunteers. And so you could volunteer as a line judge or as an interpreter. So I volunteered as an interpreter. And that was because of the language ability. I don't know whether they just thought that you know, having me doing interpretation only would be a little iffy or if it would be a waste. And so they just chose me to be the announcer. So it wasn't my choice. It wasn't something that I had practiced on. I volunteered as an interpreter and I ended up as the announcer. So I thought, oh, that's fine. I mean, I was also interpreting because we had to liaise between the foreign referees and the local event organizing staff in some cases as well. So to put you on
0: the spot just for a moment here, because, I mean, I'd love to hear you speak Korean. It'd be an interesting thing for the podcast. Would you be able to say your name and that you are on the badminton podcast in Korean for us?
2: That I'm on the badminton podcast? Yeah. I'm not sure what the, the wording would be in that particular context, but that would be... That's perfect enough for me.
0: I mean, me personally, and I think that Jeff as well has watched a couple of Korean dramas in the past and that sounded pretty <laughs> Korean to me. <laughs> anyway, moving on, Don, thank you for that. Really appreciate it. And hopefully if there are any Korean listeners out there, let us know how Don did. Give him a rating or something like that. Give us some feedback as well. Anyway, Don, in terms of, I guess, now that you've moved to Korea, you volunteered Met, uh, was recruited by uh, Bad Zine founder Raphael Sachetat. And what happened next like in terms of Bad Zine, Did you just sort of sign up and just keep going from there? What actually happened?
2: It was actually the perfect time because, you know, I had, as I say, just sort of stepped up my involvement in badminton by volunteering as an announcer. So obviously I was ready to do something more. And at that time, Raphael was really literally just at that time putting together his team for English language version of Badzine. So he'd been running the French language version for three years at that point. He was just getting ready to launch the English language version literally one month after the Cree opens. It coincided with the world championships in 2006 in uh, Madrid, was it? It was funny because he had sort of an ideal template for how uh, volunteers would contribute to the website included was how many features, how many articles, you know, we would be expected to contribute. I was sort of felt under the gun, you know, two articles every month. So I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to come up with two articles. Oddly, I'd phoned up the association and said that I wanted to interview uh, members of the Korean team before the world championships. I guess at that time, the people at the association knew me because they'd all worked with me just a couple of weeks before at the Korea Open. But Basically, they just handed me the phone number of the head coach, and I called him up. And a few days later, I was uh, showing up at the national training center. Which, interestingly, I've never managed to do since. <laughs> so, <laughs> somehow, there was there was some formal application process that I was able to circumvent exactly one time only. So that time, they were very welcoming, and I came in and I had a good conversation with the head coach Kim Jung Soo at the time, and uh, he asked me who I wanted to interview, and I ended up interviewing first players I ever interviewed were Dae and Zhang jae Song. Yeah, that was really a special time. And they were really, really coming on strong right at that time because they had just won, I think, their first two tournaments in, uh, in Germany and Thailand that year. Before the World Championship started, they got up as high as world number two. And it was several years before they reached number one, but it was really an exciting time for their partnership and Dae was already gaining a whole lot of attention, even with just a few international titles. It was really exciting to do that. And then a couple of weeks later, I, I interviewed Ha Tae-guan for sort of a historical perspective because he had been in the final the last time that the world championships were in Spain. So yeah, this is what I mean. I basically got right into this routine of, well, I've got to contribute two articles every month. Yeah. And then actually, just uh, about two months after that, the world junior championships were in Korea. So I got my first chance to cover an international tournament on-site as a journalist. Actually, they were a little bit disappointed that I wasn't going to do the announcing job for that event, but I did get to cover it as a journalist. I mean, it was during my school term, so I really had time on weekends anyway, so announcing would have been difficult. Of course, that was really exciting because all these stars of the future were there. Saina Nawal was in the final, and Wang Yihan was the winner of the the girls' singles, Mm -hmm. and... uh,
1: Tommy Sugiado was runners up in the men's single. Right, yeah, it?
2: sure. Funny yeah. story, Don. Yeah. I was there in Incheon. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> so it's a small world. It's a very small world, isn't it?
2: Right, right. Not every World Junior Championship actually produces the champions of the future, but that one certainly did. That was a very uh, successful, uh, you know, class of '88, or well, they were born in '88, but a class of '06. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So if you're looking back at all the articles you have
1: written for Bad Zine, and I guess the, the interviews with Yong Dae and Jung Jae Sung would have been amazing as well, and Tae Kwan, what would you say your favorite article is or what you would consider the best work that you've done?
2: My favorite article? Oh my goodness, there are so many to choose from there, it's really hard to say. I guess I could tell you one that was, I don't think it was really my best work as an article, but I really felt special to have it. There's so many candidates. One that I remember in particular, not for the article itself, but just for the opportunity, because in 2013, I don't know if you remember, but there was a big thing when Racha Nogintanon won the world championship, quickly became sort of the talk of the town that she was the youngest ever world champion at the time i was like wait a minute that's not exactly true that she's only the the youngest in singles so <laughs> so a few months after that i mean i really felt like i was splitting hairs and i had a lot of people accuse me of doing the same but still i just got kind of intrigued by that and it turned out that when she was born that was the year that the actual youngest ever world champion was winning her world champion the same the exact same year in in 1995 so just a few months after the world championships which i happened to be on site for which was also very special i ended up having a chance to interview Zhang Heok, who was the women's single uh, sorry women's doubles champion in 1995 uh, with gil young As. by a couple of months she was the youngest ever world champion i just really enjoyed Having that kind of opportunity. Because again, as I say, it's not, I don't believe that was my best writing. As I say, it was sort of an, an opportunity that sort of combined the opportunity to interview, you know, a former world champion and a former top player, which is always exciting, uh, no matter who it is. At the same time, it allowed me to delve into one of these sort of obscure statistical explorations, which I. Have found myself getting into so much over the years uh, at Banzi, and it's sort of one of my things. You know, rather than being a, a great writer or a great interviewer, I, I tend to sort of uncover these little-known fact kind of things that pride myself on, I suppose. But another one, I guess, that was very memorable for very different reasons was in 2011. I just took a, a suggestion from a colleague of mine that I interview an American player named. Karen Velez. And that interview went really well. It was a lot of fun to interview. At that time, it was the middle of the qualifying period for the London Olympics. So she was trying to qualify and try to take the US spot or a Pan Am spot or something like this. And so she was sort of competing with the other Pan Am players, with the other American players in particular. It was very sad though, that that two years later, that article ended up getting read a lot more than we had... uh, maybe wished because she had passed. She was, uh, she was killed in a car accident two years after that. So it was a very memorable. I felt very lucky that, you know, was not, not our only feature article, but not a lot of news outlets had had the opportunity to talk to her when she was sort of at much happier times in her career and some uh, more exciting times. And that was special, but memorable for a very sad reason.
0: Yes, and I think, uh, I mean, both Jeff and I know of Karen Having met Karen myself personally in Melbourne it was, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but uh, she was yeah definitely a lovely girl and, and a great badminton player. So
1: I remember meeting her at World Juniors when we were talking about that and in Incheon in two thousand and six. That's when I first met Karen as well.
0: So Don, moving on as a writer, and I think possibly some of our listeners would want to know what it's like to be a writer and how they can be better as a writer. Now we, I guess we talk briefly about how. Your expertise is almost looking for um, statistics that are uncommon or unearthing interesting statistics. In terms of writing itself, if there are listeners out there that would want to improve their writing skills in some way, shape or form, what would your top three tips be to engage an audience through text?
2: Oh my goodness. I guess the the main thing is you try to bring alive what happens in the actual arena where the the matches are happening. You want to give the readers something that they can't get as a as an audience member. So if there's a a television broadcast, you still you need to look for things that they're not going to see when they've watched it on television. You you've got to give them something more. And so whether that's creating the mood or coming up with poignant questions that you can ask the player that are going to get some interesting answers and insight on the match or what they're uh, doing outside of the tournament time. That's really the main thing to focus on. I guess the match reports, they're fun to do because you're on the site and you're watching the matches and talking to the players afterwards and sharing in their joy and their sorrow. At the same time, those are not always the most engaging to the to the readership and so it really pays to come up with good ideas for um a feature article try to come up with some angle on a player and and look for what it is that they have to tell as a story that you know not every player necessarily has and so that's really the key to writing like a really popular feature. When you're able to bring the player to life and show what kind of person they are and, and what kind of uh, life they lead and how they're different and unique in some way, and so I think that that's uh, that's really the key. It's I mean it's much the same as you would be doing for a podcast like this one. You have to do it with your text, and uh, of course, if you want to get the best possible quotes, you've got to come up with the best possible uh, questions and, and and this sort of thing, and, and really get the player to talk. And I guess uh, from my own background, looking at my own expertise, I think that the, what I really enjoy doing is, is looking at the, at the player's background and, you know, what sort of things they've done and, and uh, find out as much as I can. And it doesn't always work. So I really have to be ready for that. So for example, if I try to come up with some interesting thing about, you know, how, oh, this is just like the match you played against this player at, you know, some obscure tournament five years ago or something like that. And in many cases, I find that the players just, well, you know, I play a lot of matches. I don't, (laughs) don't really remember that one more so than some others. And so really is important not to get uh, discouraged and to uh, keep going and and find things that the players do have something interesting to to talk about and want to talk about and and really get them interested in telling their story.
1: Yeah. Now, I really like that in that you're trying to find something to write about or express that people can't get from just watching it or just being in the arena or just knowing who the person is. And I guess that's where the importance of the questions actually come in where you can... Yeah, the quality of the question that you ask will basically extract the gold or the really interesting information that's going to make an article pop out and really stick in someone's mind and be really intriguing and interesting. So I think that they're really, really good tips, Don. Let's move on here to basically the topic that we had kind of made contact about when we were discussing this conversation and this podcast recording. And that was when you mentioned that in badminton you feel like we're making up for lost time. So let's dig into this and what you mean by making up for lost time.
2: Yeah. Well, I think in many ways it's it's part of my personal story too. In a way, I find that what I'm trying to do with the work I've done in Zine, for example, is in a way it's sort of addressing the issue that I spend all this time you know, interested in the sport and engaged in the sport as a player without having any access to the international game. I had only had this very limited exposure to world badminton. Okay, that was in the 80s. But even after the internet came in, it still, for many years, it felt like It was really lagging in terms of badminton, in terms of Korea in badminton, in terms of Korea and the internet. And so in many ways, you know, there were different lags, different places, depending on what angle you're looking at it from. But in the case of, you know, what we tried to do with Badzine, it's really just the fact that a lot of the players' stories that we've been trying to tell They're getting told a lot more because of the spread of YouTube and the podcasts and various news sites. And of course, the BWF is doing a fantastic job now of really getting a lot more player interviews. And of course, they've got that Badminton Unlimited, the video series that they do. There's a whole lot more access now to the players' stories. When we started Badzine, it was really difficult to get those stories. And so you would get... Players who would be interviewed by, let's say, mainstream journalists when they showed up for a tournament, you didn't get a lot of background interviews. So that was a problem with badminton in general. And to some degree, though, it was really a problem with badminton writing or badminton journalism in English. And so, in the case of Badzine, we were able to get some of those stories out in English that hitherto had only been told in in other languages. The, in most cases, the languages of the players themselves. And so. To give you an idea, when we started Badzine, there were already two full-time, you know, monthly badminton magazines, physical badminton magazines, which still exist now. Or there was one which uh, sort of branched out into two. And then there was, and then one more was online. And so there actually was quite a a plethora of stories, of personal stories of players, not just on the national team, but, you know, players pre-national team and post-national team and coaches. And. There were all sorts of stories like that. You know, I could read them, but it was another step again to get that type of story known to international readers. And so that was one of the things that we really tried to do with Badzine. As I say, it's being done a lot more nowadays by various sources. But in 2006, it wasn't really getting done. You know, before I got into helping to contribute personally, I had a lot of... uh, Curiosity about the players, and there had been you know certain online sites which uh, lasted for a few years and then sort of went by the wayside. And it was difficult at that time. Raphael was doing most of the writing for the BWF. You know, his articles uh, were appearing regularly. They're mostly match, you know, tournament based, and it was harder to get uh, feature articles and find out about the players personally and sort of their individual struggles. So that was really what we were trying to accomplish with Badzine, try to make up for this gap in in information that, you know, obviously there were people who wanted to know what the players were like. They wanted to know what the players were saying. And in some cases, actually, when we first got started, they wanted to know what the scores were because, the, you know, at that time, a tournament software was only <laughs> used for some tournaments, not all. So it was really only after the Super Series era started that, You know, you could count on tournament software always having the results to you, usually live. And even that took some time to get into being wholly uh, available for without fail for each tournament. You know, we tried to get the stories out there. We tried to sort of assemble, you know, links so that people could. Easily find the websites for the tournaments and the results for the tournaments and this sort of thing. And we tried to use the global nature of the internet to get people on site whenever we could. Try to develop a network of people. I mean, the ideal was always that you'd have if you've got the internet. If you theoretically, if you had a, a writer in in every city, then you could cover all the tournaments in one webzine. That's always remained a rather elusive ideal, but nonetheless, it was something we we could strive for. In terms of the meaning of making up for lost time personally, I've already alluded to that fairly heavily that I spent all those years playing it, really enjoying a sport as a player. At the same time, any interest I had in international sport was always going to the other other sports. you know, you know I knew more about who the top downhill skiers were in the world, and it, you know, knew lots of those names and had no idea who the top badminton players were in the world. And so in that way, there was this real gap. And I largely attribute that to being in rural Canada, not having actually reliable television signals even, and uh, of course, not having access to it in the in the newspaper articles. I mean, just to give you one example, when I uh, went to my university in, in the late 80s, there was those publication, somebody had sort of tacked to the wall, those statistics, which I'm sure you've seen, uh, they're quite famous now where they compared the Wimbledon final to the world championship final and the men's singles finals. And they compared the amount of time that the the shuttle or the tennis ball was in play in these two finals uh, and made a one-to-one comparison. And they they came up with this notion of match intensity. So you're talking about total duration of the match, but then that's the denominator and your numerator is the actual number of minutes that the shuttle or the ball is in play. They did all, and they compared how many kilometers the players combined ran in each of those two finals. Those statistics are ancient now. Those were made in 1985 based on the Wimbledon final in 1985 and the world championship final in 1985 but what jumped off the page for me was that hey the world championships were in canada (laughs) so so here i was you know in canada there's no way i could have possibly have gotten to calgary i mean it's a four or five hour flight across the country from where i lived but still just the notion that my country had hosted the world championships and i had absolutely no idea about it you know have no idea whether it was on uh, television didn't see anything in a newspaper about it but you know it was something that for a Babington enthusiast like myself I can't say a fan because I, I had nothing to be a fan of I'd never seen an elite match in my life but you know just the notion that my country hosted the world championships and I had absolutely no idea no way of ever finding out about it it sort of left me with this feeling and then I felt a similar feeling for some reason in 2002, I first got the inkling that I should try to watch the Korea Open. The thing is that I had already lived in Asia for seven years at that time, or well, just over six years. And I had been in so many different places, and yet the thought itself had never occurred to me of trying to find an international badminton tournament, you know, that I could watch for the first time in my life. Just the notion, even though I knew the World Championships had been in Canada. Canada means you're on the other side of a continent a lot of the time, which was the case at that time. The fact is that just because it's in your country, that doesn't mean that you can actually go and watch the tournament. But in Korea, it does. <laughs> you know, If you've got a tournament anywhere in the country, you can jump on a train and get there within a few hours. And so uh, again, I felt that I'd sort of been missing something when I thought about it in 2002 and realized, wow, you know, I could have been watching the pre-open all this time. I could have been watching domestic tournaments with top-level badminton being played. All this time, all I had to do was, was know about them. That reality that there was this lack of information being collected and made available, that that was something that I felt was really a shame in a way that, that we, you know, people like me, not just me, but of course, other people, even later in after the internet became more Widespread, there was still an information gap there that needed to be filled. And so, you know, when I had a chance when I joined the Badzine team, I really wanted to make at least those parts. I mean, notification of tournaments was not our thing, but still, the players' stories and being able to find out what the players said after the matches was a big thing that at the time we started Badzine was not always easy to get online, even. We really struggled to provide that for our readers uh, to the degree possible. Once we started up the international version of Badzine,
0: yeah, and I think Don, that it's great that Badzine and you, you particularly, has sort of made it your life's mission to make up for the lost time and that that information gap that you're referring to. It's quite an interesting perspective because on the podcast we've always asked professional badminton players, enthusiasts, fans, etc., who come onto our podcast about what we feel badminton is missing. When compared to other sports, and how we can elevate its status. Even though earlier you were alluding to Canada, where badminton didn't have that backyard badminton connotation or imagery conjured when most people think of it. When you were growing up, you brought some very interesting perspectives into this podcast already. The information gap one is is certainly something that I haven't, I probably haven't put a lot of thought into. But now that you're talking about it, it's quite incredible to think about that. What if all throughout these years, we were able to close that information gap? Would badminton be a lot further forward than it is now? And I guess hence making up for that lost time that you're talking about. But Don, it's been great chatting to you. And I think the podcast listeners would have gotten a lot out of this podcast. And I'm mindful that we are running out of time. So before we wrap up, I guess we want to ask you or pose this last question to you. Hopefully, it'll be something that you could sum up with some of the information that you've provided today, um, especially around the closing of the information gap. But how do you think any badminton player, coach, fan, official, or volunteer can make a difference to make badminton, I guess, more popular, more celebrated, and more well-loved around the world? On
2: an individual level, a major thing that I would think people have to keep in mind is to not to sell the sport short. There's an expression that I keep seeing on in Korea when I follow the sport in the media. And actually, even when I talk to people who are involved with it, you know, coaches and players and so forth, and they use this expression, ki And ki 종목 means a sport that doesn't have a lot of popularity. <laughs> so, well, we have to sort of take that as a given that you know, the sport's not popular, so we have to do what we can in spite of it. And I never like to accept that. I just think, well, you know, I don't want it to be, as you can imagine, I don't want that to be a a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to, you know, I want people involved with badminton to hold their head up high and be proud of the sport and basically to treat it as if it deserves the respect. You know, a lot of people will say that obviously the The prize money situation, the sponsorship money, et cetera—that that that has to come first. And so many things are going to be uh, impossible until that comes. But at the same time, I think that we have to love the sport as it is. And uh, if it grows in the future, it's probably going to grow. But I think that you know we really have to love the sport for what it does for us when we engage in it, and how the world, you know, the international game is played now. And so. Rather than constantly lament the fact that, oh, these top players aren't getting as much as the top tennis players, you can win in the win the tournament and still not make as much as a first-round loser in Wimbledon. Or these these sorts of comparisons are not really so relevant, I don't think. We should embrace the advantages that we do have because of how badminton has developed along the path that it has. And so one of the things that I've always loved about the sport was that You've probably experienced this yourself where there's no real barrier between the, the the star players and the fans and the volunteers. I mean, it's really something where you you get a whole lot more contact, a whole lot more access than you would in, a, in these other sports where you've got, you know, world-class football or tennis or these sorts of things. I think that's something that we have to really cherish about the sport being where it is. I mean, we can, of course, still work to try to make sure that the players get... You know, better sponsorship money and better prize money and this sort of thing. But at the same time, we really have to love the fact that it's so easy to get an autograph or to be able to walk past the, the absolute best player on the planet on the street on their way into the tournament uh, hall and this sort of thing. And we really have to enjoy that that part of it. And even the broadcasts that we have access to, I think it's, it's really great that we have... It's one thing to say that you've got some really... Uh, slick jazzed up coverage when it comes to tennis or other sports when it comes to you know watching a, a grand slam event on television it's a real television spectacle and it's a real you know spectator draw and this sort of thing and you know we can complain that badminton deserves that too and think what can we do to make that possible but at the same time you know i really like the fact that We can watch all the matches, you know, and pick and choose. And I think it's really great that the BWF and their media partners have made so much coverage available to us that, you know, if it turns into a commercial broadcast, we're not going to have that opportunity anymore. it turns into tennis, you have to watch what the networks want you to watch and you don't have the same choice that we have now. There's a whole lot to really love about the way the sport is played now, the way the sport is people, like the type of stars that dot the landscape now, as opposed to what it might look like 10 or 20 years down the road, if it becomes a popular sport like tennis or something like that. I think there's really something that we should love about the media landscape that we have now, in addition to obviously the uh, the athleticism and the skill level and all the great fun that we watch uh, in the matches
1: themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really important perspective to take, Don, and not getting into that kind of victimhood blame where we're saying, hey, badminton doesn't get this and get that. But then the proximity to players and access to, say, the BWF YouTube channel where you can see a lot of badminton, that is definitely something that's very, very valuable to the whole badminton community worldwide. So Don, we are just wrapping up this episode of the podcast here. So if there are any of the listeners out there who would like to read some of your bad zine articles, potentially the ones where you spoke to Leong Day and Jung Jae Sung or other articles that you've written, what's the easiest way that they can access these articles to read?
2: Well, you can uh, visit our website at www.badzine.net. I guess we have all of our articles going back to... Uh, 2010. So all the archives are still there. And so uh, unfortunately, we're missing some of our older articles. That's still technical work in progress, but uh, there's still there. a good 10 years <laughs> of, uh, of solid work that I've put a lot of my life into. And I, I really hope that people will, will visit and enjoy reading what we have up there. We haven't had much, obviously, this year, and that's Something that we, uh, we hope is... Everybody, of course, is hoping that uh, 2021 is going to be so different for Badminton and for everything in general. I hope that what we've produced so far on, on Badzine is of interest to some of your listeners, too. It
0: definitely is. It is for me anyway. I'm sure it is for, for a lot of our listeners out there. And we thank you, Don, for providing us with such high-quality content over the years. 2021 is going to be a very different year. And um, I'm sure Badzin will have a great involvement with that as well. So Don, once again, thanks again for coming onto the podcast from Jeff and I.
1: So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too. Because with your help, we can show the world how
0: incredible badminton is to keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next make sure you connect with us on instagram facebook and linkedin at the badminton podcast and on twitter at the badminton pod feel free to contact us and ask any questions give us feedback or request topics for future episodes we love hearing from you And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.